And we're going to move forward in our study this morning by looking at the next few verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, a classic text. If you're not familiar with 1 Peter, I assume uh, you're familiar with this text. Probably one of the most well-known uh, verses from the Bible uh, is in this text. And let's read it together, and I'm sure you'll see which one I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves also, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The one word that God used more than any other word to describe himself in the Bible is holy. And based on the staggering number of times that God referred to himself as holy in his word, it's safe to assume that must be the number one thing he wanted us to know about him. In fact, many theologians throughout church history have reasoned that holiness is the single most important attribute of God, the supreme attribute, if you will, the sum of all of God's attributes, the, the crowning attribute that serves as a setting to display all of his other attributes in glorious array like jewels and a crown. If holiness is the crown... You have the jewels of love and grace and mercy and faithfulness and goodness all arrayed as, as holy attributes. One of the most riveting and compelling books written in our time is R.C. Sproul's classic, The Holiness of God. How many of you have read that book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul? I would highly recommend uh, you putting that on your reading list. Because in it, he describes his own spiritual experience in coming to grips with God's holiness. This is what he said, quote, the one concept, the central idea I kept meeting in scripture was the idea that God is holy. Today, I am still absorbed with the holiness of God. I'm convinced that it is one of the most important ideas Christians will ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. Therefore, we must seek to understand what holy is. We dare not seek to avoid it. There can be no worship, no spiritual growth, no true obedience without it. It defines our goal as Christians. God has declared, be holy because I am holy. So the first step toward being holy like God is holy is to clearly understand what it means to be holy. And so let me give you a simple definition of the word holy. Kadosh in the Hebrew, hagios in the Greek, it literally means to cut or to separate. In other words, to be holy means to be separate or set apart from something or someone. And so the fact that God is holy means that he is both set apart from sin 
and he's also set apart from us. And so there's really two aspects of God's holiness. First of all, he's set apart from creation. In other words, he's incomparable. He's without equal. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. And what we gather from that is that there is a profound difference between God and the rest of his creation. He's totally different than anything else he created. He's completely distinct from us. He's absolutely other than us. So holy, holiness signifies God's absolute uh, incomparability, his absolute inapproachability, his transcendent majesty, how he's infinitely above us, how he's infinitely beyond us, how there's this infinite distance that separates us from him. So he's set apart from creation, but he's also set apart from corruption. In other words, he's impeccable. He's without evil or sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, your eyes are too pure or holy to look at evil. God is absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. He is too pure to even look at it, let alone do it. He only and always does what is right. He can never do anything wrong. He is untouched, unstained by sin. He is perfectly pure without sin. He cannot be tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else to sin. He cannot tolerate any kind of sin or evil in his presence. He can never excuse it or ignore it. No matter how small, he hates it and he must punish it. And so the natural question becomes then, how can sinful, unholy people like us ever be holy like God has demanded us to be? Well, we can take heart from the words of A.W. Pink, who said this, quote, blessed be his name, that which his holiness demanded, his grace has provided in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, you being holy is not about you, it's about Jesus. And there really, there's really two phases or stages to the holiness that God demands of us and provides for us. First of all is salvation. God clothes us with Christ's holiness. And so we need to understand God's holiness because... Until we do, we'll never understand our sinfulness, and until we ever never understand, if we never understand our sinfulness, we'll never understand the cross's awfulness, because the cross is the ultimate display of God's holiness. It shows how much God hates sin and how far he was willing to go to destroy it to preserve his holiness. God hates so, sin so much that he killed his son to do away with it. And so when Christ hung on the cross, God let loose his holy hatred for our sin on Jesus. And his death satisfied God's holy wrath against sin. And if you remember, when Christ died, the veil in the temple that divided the the outer courts with the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom, as if to symbolize that God was the one tearing that in half, 
And what this symbolized was that through Christ's substitutionary death, those who turn from their life of sin and who trust in him alone for their salvation have access now to his holy presence. God's presence is no longer off limits like it was in the Old Testament. How did that happen? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God put our sin on Christ, and he puts Christ's righteousness on us. He credits it to us. He, he transfers it to our account. And so the only way we can enter God's holy presence in heaven is to be clothed with Christ's holiness or righteousness. So our holiness before God depends entirely on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Another classic book on the subject of holiness is titled Holiness by J.C. Ryle. This is one of my, my favorite books that I've ever read. We've gone through it a number of times with our Iron Men over the years. And this is what Ryle said, quote, a word of advice to all who desire to be holy. Would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do just nothing at all and make no progress till you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness, and the way to be holy is to come to him by faith. Holiness comes from Christ. It is the result of vital union with him. And so the first thing we need to understand about God's holiness is that God imparts his holiness to us through Christ positionally at salvation. And so from the moment we're saved, God views us as perfect and holy just like Christ. But at the same time, while the Bible speaks of the holiness that we have in Christ, it also speaks of a holiness that we must pursue. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this moves us from the, the phase of salvation to sanctification. And sanctification simply means being set apart from sin unto God. In the same way that we're clothed with Christ's holiness, now we need to be conformed to Christ's holiness. Where we are less and less like we used to be before we got saved and become, we become more and more like Christ. In other words, we should no longer be doing the same sinful things that we used to do when we were unbelievers. We need to separate ourselves or be set apart from our old sinful habits and practices and strive to be holy in all that we say and do. And that's the essence of Peter's exhortation in this passage. Notice verse 13. The very first word he says is, therefore. And you've heard, I'm sure, this said before, but whenever you come across a therefore in the scriptures, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. And this is a transitional term where essentially what Peter is doing is, he is saying here, every, based on everything I just got done saying in verses 1 through 12, you need to realize that there are some duties and responsibilities that come with the blessings of this great salvation I just got done describing. And so this is very much like Paul's letters, Peter laid a theological foundation in the first 12 verses, out of which flow some practical implications. 
Uh, you just have to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, in light of who you are in Christ, now this is the way you're supposed to live. Same thing. We just got done studying Romans, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, in other words, that describes everything he just got done describing or, or explaining in chapters 1 through 11. In view of God's mercies, you are to what? Devote yourselves, be a living sacrifice um, to the Lord. This is what's referred to as the indicative imperative motif or mode of writing. And in other words, the, the, the authors of Scripture would start with the indicatives or the statements of fact about what God has done and who we are in Christ. And they would follow that up with imperatives or commands, things that we are to do as a result of what God has done for us or who we are in Christ. And again, this is important to keep in mind. We need to maintain a balance between what we need to do and what God has already done so that what we do for him will be done in response to and in reliance on what he's done for us in Christ. In other words, this is not a pull yourself up by your own bootstrap sanctification. This is, this is a dependent discipline. You men that came to man camp, you'll remember the, the, the term that, that Jared used, that, uh, uh, the, the virtue, uh, cultivating the virtue of desperation, that we are desperate when it comes to our own sanctification. So according to Peter, the first practical implication or obligation of being saved, being one of God's chosen, is to be sanctified, to be holy. In other words, our, our new birth in Christ should cause us to live differently, different from how we used to live when we were unbelievers and different than how the rest of the unbelievers in the world live. You see, the primary evidence that we have been saved is that we're being sanctified. One way to think about sanctification is, is that there is a a, a decreasing frequency of sin in your life. In other words, you sin less and less every day. There's also an increasing sensitivity to sin in your life, which is the paradox of the Christian life. While there may be a decreasing frequency of sin actually happening in your life, in other words, you are sinning less and less, you feel like more and more of a sinner <laughs> because your sensitivity to sin is being heightened at the same time the frequency of your sin is decreasing. Get used to it, because we'll never achieve perfect holiness during our lifetime. As long as, we, as long as we are here on this earth, in our unredeemed flesh, we will struggle with sin. If you don't believe that, just look at Romans chapter 7, where the most spiritually mature guy probably who ever lived on the planet, apart from Christ, obviously, the apostle Paul talked about his inner struggle and battle with sin. But in the midst of that daily battle with sin, we look forward with great anticipation to that day when we'll be glorified and we'll no longer sin. And when Christ returns and we finally see him or behold the one we love, even though we've not seen him, chapter 1, verse 8, we will be instantly transformed and perfectly conformed into the image of Christ. And it's that glorious hope 
that we will be made holy someday that should motivate us to pursue holiness now. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. In other words, our sanctification is propelled along by the confidence that we have that there is more grace to come to us in our future glorification. Some of you may be familiar with John Piper's book, Future Grace. That that was the point of this super thick book that you might find it challenging to get through all the way. But the subtitle of that book is The Purifying Power of Living by Faith in Future Grace. And he came up with that concept based on passages like the one we're looking at this morning. Because Peter didn't just command believers to be holy. He didn't just say, therefore, be holy. He commanded them, first of all, to be hopeful. Why? Because our hopefulness serves as the grounds of our holiness. In other words, there's a vital connection between looking forward to heaven and living a holy life here on earth. And so in these these four verses that we have before us, there are actually two commands. You say, well, it sounds like there's more than just two. Well, there are actually two commands supported by three participles. And some Bible translations, the one you might have in front of you, uh, translate these part of participles with the force of imperatives. So it looks like there's five commands, like prepare your mind, keep sober, fix your hope, don't be conformed, uh, be holy. But I think a better way to translate what Peter was saying would sound something more like this. And some of your translations may be closer to this. Having prepared your minds for action, and while keeping sober... Put your hope in your glorification that will take place at the coming of Christ and be holy like God, no longer living like you used to live before you came to Christ. And so what I want us to look at this morning is just these two exhortations. The exhortation to hopefulness and the exhortation to holiness. And again, these are exhortations given to those of us who have been chosen by God for salvation so that we would live differently than we used to live before we were saved, and that we would live differently than the rest of the unbelievers in our world. And we're going to see why that's so important. Because one of the sub-themes of the book of 1 Peter is this concept of conduct or behavior that people are watching us. And what will catch their attention is when we're different than everyone else in the world, and they'll want to know why. And we'll have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And so let's look at, first of all, this exhortation to hopefulness and in verse 13. And notice how Peter began this, this practical application section by exhorting us as believers to adopt a new mindset that we need in order to fulfill the responsibilities he's about to give us. 
Notice he says in verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Literally, while you're preparing your minds for action, some of your translations say gird up your minds for action, which sounds like a, a strange term to our ears today, but in Peter's day, people wore these long flowing robes that made it difficult whenever they needed to run or to work or to go uh, into battle. And so whenever they began a journey or whenever they went to work or whenever they went to war, they would gather up uh, the loose ends of their robe and wrap them around their legs and tuck them up inside their belt around their waist and cinch it all up so they could work and, and move freely. And so this idea of preparing your mind for action is, 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 is really the concept of getting ready to engage in some, some vigorous, strenuous activity. Peter was about to challenge them to, to head out on the path of sanctification, to, to, to go to work on their lives, to make war on their fleshly lusts. See, there's nothing more vigorous, there's nothing more strenuous than living a life of obedience to God. It's hard work. It's a war. And we're called to run the race that is set before us and not allow things to entangle us or to trip us up. And so essentially what Peter was saying is, listen, pull yourself together. Be spiritually alert. Rid your minds of everything that impedes your spiritual growth and get ready to respond to God with complete obedience. You may remember back in Exodus chapter 12 when God instituted the Passover and it was on the night before he would deliver his people from Egypt and they would be heading out towards Canaan he said this, Exodus 12, 11, when he instructed them how to eat Passover, he said, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's like, pack up, we're ready to go, okay, let's take Passover, and we're out of here. One commentator described it as, in these words, he said, they were about to leave the old way of life forever. Henceforth, they were to live as people who had been redeemed by precious blood, the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorpost, right, that was symbolic of the blood of Christ. They were to be a pilgrim people. Makes sense, right? A pocket guide for pilgrims here. They were to be a pilgrim people living according to new laws, possessors of a new life and a new hope. They were on their way to Canaan. And in principle, that applies to us, that we are a new people, a pilgrim people with new laws, new life, new hope, and we're on our way to heaven. And so this is no time to kick back and relax, in other words, what Peter is getting at. Maybe uh, if Peter was writing to us today, he might simply say, hey, you know what? It's time to roll up your sleeves and get to work. That would be the girding up your loins, right? In their day, that would be the, the, the girding up your loins. Hey, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then he goes on, he says, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Literally, this word was uh, 
describing abstaining from getting drunk. Keep sober. But the translators add in spirit there. You notice maybe in italics. Because I think Peter was using this term metaphorically, not just talking about physical sobriety, but more mental sobriety. That we're to be self-controlled and rather than self-indulgent, we should, we should always be in full possession of our faculties at all times. We shouldn't be lazy-minded. We shouldn't be undisciplined. And this is, a, this is a, a challenging command because let's be honest, there are times when we let our minds become intoxicated by the things of this world. Or our minds come under the, the, the spell of sin which deceives us and disorientates us and clouds us, uh, clouds and confuses our thinking. And we're just not thinking straight. Peter, Peter used the same word sober in, later in this letter uh, to talk about praying. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And then probably more familiar is chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Paul, excuse me, Peter was encouraging a, an attitude of alertness or readiness, just like Jesus did in Luke chapter 12, and you can just write this down, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, when he said, hey, if you know the, 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 the homeowner is coming back, uh, you need to be ready. Don't, don't be caught drunk, hanging out, lazy, undisciplined, be ready, be prepared. Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, talking about the day of the Lord. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, you need to be armed and ready for the return of Jesus. And that's where he's headed here. Notice, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is that a reference to? What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's his return. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, using that same word, revelation, in verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a reference to the return of Christ, which will usher in the ultimate consummation of our salvation. And he's saying we are to, to fix our hope on that completely. This living hope that we were given. Notice in verse 3, we were born again to a living hope. So this is to be what we look forward to. And it's not just wishful thinking kind of hope. Well, I really hope that Jesus comes back. No, this is the confident expectation that God will demonstrate more grace than he already has when Christ returns. 
how interesting is this? Remember back in verse 10? As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that we received the grace of God when Christ came the first time. But notice, there's more grace coming. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, we've already experienced God's grace in our salvation. We're presently experiencing God's grace right now in our sanctification, and we will experience God's grace in the future in our glorification. And I think it's safe to say what we've experienced so far in regards to God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor to helpless and hopeless sinners like, our, like us, uh, there is more to come. The, the grace that we experience in the future is even greater. Again, this is the blessed hope of every believer. Titus, uh, Paul in his letter to Titus said it this way, verse 11 of chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see the connection that is not just here in 1 Peter, but in really many other passages in Scripture, that, that believing and hoping that Jesus could come back at any moment serves as a compelling reason to live a holy life. Someone said it this way, if we really believe in the second coming of Christ, this belief must make a difference in the way we live. In other words, living in light of Christ's imminent return, in other words, he could come back at any moment, will motivate us to be on our best behavior. This analogy breaks down a bit if it's simply seen in the, through the eyes of fear, but when I was a young boy, my dad was a traveling salesman, and when he would leave on Monday morning and, and then not come home till Friday night, I knew I had some time to get away, get away with some stuff. But then God gave me a mom that you couldn't get away with anything. It's like she had little people following me around everywhere, and she was always knew like what I thought I'd done, and nobody knew. She knew about it before I got home from school, and uh, she had her minions out there keeping an eye on me. So I would get in a lot of trouble during the week, but around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, I'd start getting my act together. Start behaving myself because I knew my dad could drive in the driveway at any moment and I didn't want to find him or have him find me or catch me doing something that I knew he wouldn't approve of. And again, if it's just pure fear, this is again where the analogy breaks down, but I think we should always be asking ourselves the question, is this something that I would like Jesus to find me doing if he were to come back right now? Jonathan Edwards, in his list of 70 resolutions, try this one on for size, resolved never 
to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And how do you know it's not the last hour of your life? So being hopeful of this transformation that will occur by God's grace when we get to heaven serves as a powerful incentive for being holy while we're still here on this earth. And so don't miss this first exhortation, this exhortation to holiness. And I'm just confessing that, that typically we just race immediately to chapter, or to, excuse me, to verses 14, 15, and 16 and get down to the be holy as God is holy. But I'm so thankful that Peter gave us the proper motivation for this. And so he starts with an exhortation to holiness, or excuse me, to, to hopefulness, but then he does follow it up with an exhortation to holiness. Notice verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance. Literally, as children of obedience, which should have a strange ring to it because we are normally referred to in Scripture at least in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 5, as children of what? Disobedience. And before we're saved, that's what we are called, that's what we are considered, children of disobedience. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In other words, our lives were characterized by disobedience because of our sin nature inherited from our father Adam. But when we're born again, we're given a new nature that we inherit from our Heavenly Father. In other words, a child has the same nature as his parent. We are to reflect our Father. And yet even though we are partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, that doesn't mean we won't sin ever again. But as members of God's family, our lives should now be characterized by obedience to Christ. Remember chapter 1, verse 2, that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Look at verse 22. We're going to get here in a couple weeks. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. All that to say, true salvation, if you're truly saved, it, it will result, result in obedience, living an obedient life. It's just the natural fruit of being one of God's children. It's, it, it's what proves we are no longer children of the devil. You can cross-reference 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. How do you distinguish between a child of God and a child of the devil? It's the pattern of their life. Is it a pattern of obedience or a pattern of disobedience? So he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance. The only other time this word for conformed is is used anywhere else in scripture is Romans 12 2 which you remember that right it says do not be conformed to this world don't, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold 
Don't continue to pattern your life after the ways of the world. Don't think like the world. Don't talk like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't keep following your desires wherever they lead you. Stop, stop, stop doing what remaining sin within you makes you feel like doing. In other words, control your desires rather than letting them control you and lead you to disobey God. And we need to get used to this exhortation because Peter repeats it, not just in this first letter, but his second letter. Notice chapter 2 here, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Chapter 4, verse 2. He says, live the rest of the time in your flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, He says, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Chapter 2, verse 10. He's talking how the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. In that same chapter, verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. And then chapter 3, verse 3, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their own mocking, following after their own lusts. So he's saying, hey, don't, don't be conformed to your old lusts, your old habit patterns, which were yours in ignorance. In other words, he, he recognizes that, that hey, I, I, I get it, you didn't know any better before you were saved. You were ignorant of God and his ways. You didn't know who God was or what he required of you. But now you know better. And that should show by the way that you live your life. Namely, by no longer being conformed to this world, but being conformed to the one who saved you. Notice he says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Don't miss the fact that Paul, or excuse me, Peter, once again is reminding his readers that it was God who initiated their salvation, that it was the Holy One who called them. God called us before we called on Him. And so here's another veiled reference to the doctrine of election, which we find all throughout First and Second Peter, many references to it. We didn't have time to look at it again this morning. But along with the blessing of being one of God's chosen people comes a responsibility to live a holy life. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so Peter is just repeating the words of Paul, he's saying, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Be set apart, be different, 
from the rest of the world in every way, in the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act. And notice he emphasizes this word behavior, and this is the word I was referring to earlier. It's the Greek word anastrophe. We're going to see this pop up seven more times in First and Second Peter, and it refers to our conduct or our lifestyle, which should lead others to salvation as a result of watching the way we live. For example, the wife in chapter 3, verse 1, married to a man who's disobedient, a husband who's disobedient to the word, that, that, that she would submit to him and, and, and so that she might win him over without a word by the behavior of her life as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That's where he's going with this. And so Peter's saying, hey, listen, every area of your life should be in the process of becoming completely conformed to God's perfect and holy will. And notice he gives the, the reason. Why? Why should you no longer be conformed to your former lusts? Why should you be holy in all your behavior? Because, verse 16, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So this is nothing new. This is not a, some, some concept Peter came up with. This is based on the Old Testament. And Peter was quoting, anyone want to take a guess? What, what Old Testament book was he quoting here? The book of Leviticus. Which should, come as, which should come as no surprise because it's all about God's holiness and how he wanted his people to be holy and set apart. And he said, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. He, he wanted them to be different. The world eats this, I want you to eat this. The world does this on this day, I want you to do this on this day. The world goes here, I want you to go here. And so the word holy is used more in the book of Leviticus than in any other book of the Bible. And Peter wasn't the only one who quoted Leviticus to, to add weight to his exhortation uh, to, uh, to, to, to people to be holy. If you remember in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is clean. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. By the way, don't miss this because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The standard is God, not your spouse. Well, I'm a little more holy than her or him. So I feel pretty good about myself. It's not your brother or sister. Some of you are like, well, I'm not as bad as they are. We use one another as our standards, our neighbors, our, our co-workers, our classmates, even fellow Christians in the church. We're like, well, I'm going to compare my level of holiness to someone sitting next to me. No, that's not the standard. The standard is God. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which again, no believer, 
no matter how mature we are in Christ, will ever attain perfect holiness in this life. And yet that is what we're to strive for. That must be our passionate pursuit. Why? Because that's why Jesus died for us. We just celebrated communion this morning. Why did Jesus die for us? Jesus didn't die for us just to keep us from going to hell. He died to make us holy. And he will do whatever it takes to make us holy. One more book for your reading list on the subject of holiness. You've got Sproul's Holiness of God, right? Got that on your list to read? Then you've got Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Third book put on your list, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And I'll close with his words. He said this, quote, The only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. If we know nothing of holiness, we may flatter ourselves that we are Christians, but we do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Everyone, then, who professes to be a Christian should ask himself, quote, is there evidence of practical holiness in my life? Do I desire and strive after holiness? Do I grieve over my lack of it and earnestly seek the help of God to be holy? It is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven, but to those whose lives are holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this strong challenge from your word, something that we all need to hear often because we live in a very unholy world and we live in an unholy flesh that is constantly looking for ways to give in to temptation and to be satisfied and we have an unholy enemy, the devil, and his minions who are real and are doing everything in their power to make us unholy. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's been seduced by Satan and been dulled by the deceitfulness of sin in their minds, in their hearts, they become sleepy, groggy, under sin's spell, they're disoriented, they're distracted. Lord, I pray that you would use this message to refocus them and, and, and help them just to shake off whatever it is that's, that's grabbed a hold of them and has entangled them and that they would, by your grace, run the race that is set before them and they would pursue the holiness that you talk about in your word that without it, we won't see you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.